working through the book of Romans, and will be for a while. I was just going to mention, and will occasionally, if you want to go back and listen to past sermons, because you missed them, they are available on the Kishwaukee Church website, which you can find in the bulletin. I don't expect everyone to listen to all of them. I don't actually expect anyone to listen to all of them, but, um, <laughs> but if you would like to go back and get caught up, that would be great. Um, as we turn to this text this morning, this is kind of the end of Paul's introduction to the letter. And there's something really interesting in this text that I want us to notice right at the beginning of this sermon, because I think it's really important to the way that I think about and I think we should think about ministry and the Christian life. And that interesting thing happens in verse 15. So look at verse 15 with me. It says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So Paul's explaining this letter and his desire to come visit the Romans, and he explains that the reason he wants to come is to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Which is interesting, because Paul's writing to people who are Christians, right? Because of this, some people have taken this to mean that what Paul actually means in verse 15 is that he wants to go be a missionary to Spain and kind of base out of Rome. And he talks about doing that at the end of the letter, But that's not what he says in verse 15, right? He says he wants to preach the gospel in Rome. And other people have taken it to mean that Paul wants to kind of come evangelize in Rome and get unbelievers there to come join the church. But Paul isn't saying that he wants to preach to those in Rome, right? He says he wants to preach to you who are in Rome, to the people reading this letter. We mentioned a few weeks ago this idea that Jesus... And the gospel, the good news of what he's done in Jesus Christ, that those are meant to be central every day to our Christianity. That the gospel is not like some first step that you take and then you move on to other stuff. It's not the stuff you get figured out so that then you can worry about the real Christian stuff. That it's meant to be where you start from and where you live and where you return to. And that idea is so important. It's the driving force of the Reformation, actually, where, um, where our tradition came out of. Here's how Martin Luther put it, talking about the gospel. He says, The gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into our heads continually. The gospel's not just some box you check. It's something we need to beat into our heads continually. And that certainly seems to be what Paul thinks. I mean, the church in Rome is doing pretty well. We noted that last week. This isn't one of those letters where Paul's writing to clean house. It's not like he doesn't think that they're believers or like he thinks they've completely missed the point. He's very positive about where they're at. But Paul still wants to preach the gospel to them because they need to hear the gospel. All of which, I think, is something that most Christians are agreeable to when you say it, or at least we don't disagree with it, right? It's not like we say, no, let's not have the gospel. But it's one thing to not disagree, and another thing to actually put this into practice, actually constantly return to the gospel, beat it into our heads. And I think that's because we don't appreciate what the gospel is. Not just that we don't appreciate what it says, although that's part of it, but that we don't appreciate what it is. We treat it like just sort of one among a number of kind of doctrinal things that you're supposed to say as a Christian, like it's empty words. But in these verses, what Paul is trying to get the Romans to see as he prepares to embark in a letter that is in many ways, as a whole, a proclamation of the gospel, is that while the gospel comes to people as a word, as a message, it's not empty. It's not just one among many things we profess. It is a word that shakes the universe. 
It is God's word, like those he spoke when creation was formed. So this morning, I want us to reflect on what Paul is saying about what kind of word the gospel is. And as we do, I think that we'll begin to understand why it is and how it is that we would come back to it over and over in our lives. Because according to Paul, the gospel is a universal word and a powerful word and the final word. It's a universal word and a powerful word and the final word. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, the gospel is a universal word. That this, this proclamation of what God has done in Jesus Christ is meant to cross the boundaries that we draw in our world. So look at verse 16. Look at the end of it. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. We've discussed this before, because this is kind of an alien thing to our world, but one of the most basic divisions for Paul in the church is between Jews and Gentiles. Before Jesus came, God's people had been limited to the nation and ethnicity of Israel, right? And Israel is meant to be a light to the nations, but it was also kind of an exclusive group. And so God had given them these boundary markers, these things they were supposed to do and how they dressed and how they ate that were supposed to mark them as that separate group. And now, because of Jesus... Those boundaries have been torn down. God's drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation into his people. And that is creating tension in the church. So on the one hand, you've got these people who had this Jewish background, and their identity as God's people was caught up um, alongside all of these other identity markers that he'd given them originally, right? About how they dressed and how they ate. And suddenly... Um, In Jesus, all of these things were no longer commanded, and now all these weirdos were coming into the church. All these people who dressed differently, and acted differently, and ate differently, and didn't share that identity. And so the Jews were struggling to accept the Gentiles. And at the same time, the Gentiles were also having trouble accepting the Jews. They saw them as stuffy, and reactionary, and old-fashioned, and, you know, didn't understand why they were having a hard time getting with this new stuff that was happening. And the Jews also didn't fit in with Gentile society, right? They weren't kind of cool or hip or savvy. And so the Gentiles were struggling to accept the Jews. And according to Paul, the gospel is coming to call both of those people. And it gets even more interesting if you look at verse 14. In verse 14, Paul says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And so now he's talking about this other division. That word that the NIV translates non-Greeks, that doesn't really do it justice. The word is, well, it's barbaroi, but it means, it's the word barbarians, okay? And not like Conan, it's not like, you know, what is best in life? I can't do an Arnold. Anyway, uh, but, you know, but, but barbarians in the sense that, um, that in the ancient world, right, you had the Greeks, and the Greeks were seen as the, like, educated, sophisticated, culturally savvy kind of people. Now, sure, Paul is writing to Rome, but Rome had basically just taken Greek culture and made it theirs. They'd taken their gods and given them different names, and they'd made up these stories about how they were basically descended from the Greeks. So Greek culture was like what the elite and intelligent people spoke, you know, knew Greek language was what all of the educated people spoke. And then there were people from outside of this world who didn't speak Greek, and they were barbarians. They were the foreigners. They were regarded as stupid and backwater by the Greeks. The, the word barbarian actually comes from Greeks making fun of how they talked. Um, like, people who didn't speak Greek all sounded like they went bar, 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 whenever, uh, seriously, whenever they talked. So, um, 
So there's these outsiders then. And so Paul is saying it's not just this line between Jews and Gentiles that the gospel is crossing. It's also this line between Greeks and barbarians, between the sophisticated civilized people and the foreign and uncivilized ones, which is to say the gospel is for everyone. That these were the major divisions in Paul's day. If you had to list the things that divided society, these were it. And Paul is saying that Jesus comes to cross those lines and tear them down. So the gospel is a universal word. That is also part of why we need to keep coming back to it. Because we are constantly having our divisions reinforced by the world around us. Look, I don't know that anyone really has to tell you that this world is divided, right? It is. I mean, in the first place, when we think about the worldwide scope of Christianity, it's divided nationally. And these verses are a reminder that Jesus crosses those bridges, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Germany, in Brazil, in China, and Iran, and that we have a fellowship with them that transcends any other earthly fellowship. But even within our country and even within our churches, we feel divisions, don't we? I mean, we're divided racially. I know some people bristle at this, and I don't mean that to go in any political direction. But it's just true in our world, right, that race is still a significant issue that people feel the weight of division for. We're divided politically. I don't think I really need to offer any evidence of that at this moment, as I think it's very much on everyone's minds. We're divided culturally, too. I mean, people of the same race and same political party can still feel like they live in different worlds. The wealthy and educated look down on the poor and uneducated because they see them as, you know, as backward. And the poor and uneducated regard the wealthy and educated as kind of pompous jerks, right? We're divided. And we're divided because all of those divisions, those boundaries around people, do actually exist. They're more than just illusions. That's actually one of the most important things I think we need to realize if we're going to address that issue. There's this temptation that people have to say simply, we're all the same, right, you know, deep down, and we should all just get along. And I don't think that's always helpful. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment of that statement, right? Because it is true that we're all human beings, and we have a lot in common, and, um, and I'd like us to all get along. But we're also really different. I mean, people of different races, for example, have really different experiences that shape the way that they view the world. Growing up, I never had to process the fact that my grandparents couldn't vote or use the same bathroom as other people, right? And, um, and growing up, I listened to different music and ate different foods and was taught different values in significant ways and different ways of dressing and different ways of talking and acting than friends that I have who came from backgrounds that weren't white. And I never had to wonder if someone was being unfair to me simply because of my race, right? All of those things, those really make differences. Like, those really are going to shape people and form people in ways that makes it a challenge for us to fellowship with them. And the same is true of those other divides as well. I mean, political beliefs are not inconsequential, right? Like, we believe things that we do about politics because we really believe that they're good for people and that other things are bad. And, and so are cultural differences, right? I mean, it really matters whether you think the most important thing to know in the world is Aristotle or how to fix your car. Like, that really gives you a different set of values and a different way of leaning into the world. And our world, because of all of that, is really divided. It's not an illusion. We believe different things and dream about different things and care about different things. And what the gospel tells us is not that those divisions aren't real, that there is something that unifies us that is infinitely greater than any of those differences. 
that I really care about those things that I just listed, about my culture and my background and my beliefs. I really care, but God has chosen to cross them anyway. That he has crossed those lines in Jesus. And so I have to figure out how to love these people, even though we're different in all kinds of ways. I have to figure out how to love them. I don't know if this makes sense, but I think it's a crucial difference. The problem with pretending that we're all the same is that we tell people that we should all just naturally be friends and that it just doesn't make sense that we're not all just friends. And that just doesn't work in the world. It would be great if it was true, but the reality is that if there's one thing I know in this world, it's that everyone isn't just going to naturally all get along. We need something stronger than that if we're going to work for unity. And we have that in the gospel. Here's how D.A. Carson theologian puts it. He says, what binds us together as Christians is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural co-location, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says And he commands them to love one another. This is the key then. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. A band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I love that because it means that we don't have to pretend like it's easy always and natural for us to get along with each other. And I love it because that has real power. Because it's saying that it's going to be hard and we're going to wrestle with our differences, but we have to do it because of Jesus, because the gospel has already done it. And so we need to constantly return to the gospel because it is the thing that's going to shape our priorities against all of those divisions in the world that says that we might all be different because of race and because of politics and because of culture and background and story and nationality, but that fundamentally, beyond all of that, we are sinners who Jesus died for and who have life because of his resurrection, and that that trumps all of those divisions that we've just listed. So the gospel is something we need constantly because it's a universal word, and it challenges the way that we like to divide the world. We also need the gospel because it's a powerful word. Because the gospel is a powerful word. Look again at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. This is true about the initial moment that the gospel comes. It's the power of God for the salvation of the lost. That the gospel meets people without hope or peace or freedom and proclaims Jesus Christ to them. And although this proclamation, through that proclamation, it draws them to him. Which incidentally should tell us something about how we try to share our faith with people. I know that's a scary conversation for many of us and we're not going to have a long, detailed discussion this morning. But one thing that, that always strikes me about passages like this one is that that should tell us that, um, that when we're trying to do that, when we're talking about Christianity, that we need to talk about Jesus. <laughs> we need to talk about Jesus, which I, sounds obvious when you say it, but, but for me and for all of us, it's surprisingly easy to forget. Because you can talk about how much you like your church, right? 
Maybe you do. You can talk about the good moral teachings of Christianity. You can talk about all this other stuff. And, and all of that's fine, right? But, but if you haven't talked about Jesus, you haven't shared Christianity. And on the flip side, when you do talk about Jesus, that there's a power there. That it's not the proclamation of how great the people of Kish are, or what great Christian values Christianity teaches, or any of that that saves people. It's the proclamation of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That that has the power to save. And that when we share that, we are bringing that power to bear on the people around us. So the gospel is the power of God for the lost. But it's also the power of God for us as well. When you look at verse 16 again, it says the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. And when we talk about salvation, we can sometimes have too limited a view of it. We, we think of it as just sort of when you get saved. But when the Bible uses that word, it's really talking about kind of the whole big thing that is God's work in us. Salvation means our justification. Yes, that's the word they used to talk about that moment when we trust in Christ and our sins are covered by him. But it also means Our sanctification, which is the word they use for us growing up into Jesus and becoming progressively through our lives more like him. And it even means our glorification. Scripture talks about our salvation as that time when we are at last resurrected and the power of sin is broken and everything is made new. All of that's caught up in salvation. And the gospel is the power of God, not just for the beginning of that process, but for the whole thing. The gospel isn't just like when you pull, you know, the ripcord thing on your mower to start it up. It's the fuel in the tank that keeps it going. Here's what that means, I think, in practice. Our problem with sin, right, our struggle with sin, is not just a problem with our actions. It's not just that we do bad stuff. It's a problem with our hearts. Our hearts actually love and value things wrongly, and that causes us to sin. It's worth really stressing that point when you think about trying to walk with Jesus. So Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. What that means is this. Nobody just wakes up in sin out of the blue, right? No one is just like, I don't know how I got here. Well, maybe, maybe that's how you feel, but it's always, in truth, a process. You let your heart be discontent. You let it lust or fantasize or long for things that are evil. You let it look for meaning or significance in unhealthy places. You let bitterness or resentment or despair grow up in it. You don't deal with the darkness in it. You let your heart go that way, and then your actions are ultimately like a dog on a leash, right? They're going to end up following. They might, for a time, kind of exist in tension with it, but over time, there's this natural pull where your heart's going to pull your actions in the direction that it is. And that means that we need our hearts to be changed. If we try to just change our actions without addressing what's going on in our hearts, we might reform for a little while, but it's going to drag us back. But you don't just change your heart, right? That's the, tr- the problem, not in some direct way. I get how I can kind of try to change my actions, but there's not like some knobs and dials, right, that I can change to mess with my desires and longings and fears and hopes. But the main way we change our heart is by applying God's truths to them. And centrally, by applying the gospel to our hearts. By applying the gospel to our hearts, over time, it actually begins to change. The author Jerry Bridges, in his really fantastic book, The Disciplines of Grace, 
talks about this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Preaching the gospel to yourself every day. And here's how he defines it. He says, every day, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate, again by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, which means that he suffered all the punishment that you should suffer, that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. Do that, he says, daily. You preach that to yourself every day. And what's crazy is that as you do that, your heart starts to change. Not all at once, right? And not that you won't also have to work on changing your actions. I don't want to sell this as kind of meaning the opposite of that. There's still habits and, you know, and things that we have to work on. But that there is power for our change in the gospel. It comes from seeking every day to preach those truths to ourself. That Jesus has satisfied the law of God for us. That he has suffered whatever guilt and punishment we should suffer. That God's holy wrath is no longer in any way directed towards you. That is where the power of transformation lies. So the gospel is a universal word. It's for all people and it's a powerful word. It comes with the Holy Spirit and the power to transform lives. There's one more thing I think Paul wants to highlight, and that is that the gospel is also the final word. The gospel is the final word. To see what I mean, we need to look at verse 17. Read it with me. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that verse is, many people would say, the key verse of all of Romans, okay? If you're gonna, if you ever memorize Bible verses from this sermon series, like, memorize that verse, all right? But, um, but let's talk about it. The righteousness of God, all right? He, starts, he says the gospel is the righteousness of God. And that is a phrase with a pregnant Old Testament background for Paul. On the one hand, that phrase, the righteousness of God, is often used to talk about God's salvation of his people, So for example, Isaiah 46, I bring near my righteousness, this is God talking, it is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God's righteousness in terms of his salvation, right? Um, The world is messed up. Our lives can be messed up. And so we come to God and we say, Lord, you are righteous. So change things, destroy sin, judge the wicked, give us peace. We're coming to God and using his righteousness, right, to talk about his salvation. But at the same time, God's righteousness also means something else. It can mean God's judgment. So in Psalm 50, for example, the psalmist, he's picturing God coming to judge his people, actually, for their own sin and hypocrisy. And he says, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So now we have righteousness bringing judgment, not salvation, but condemnation. Which is to say that we want what I just said. We want God to come in righteousness, right? And judge the world. We want him to judge the wicked. But we never want ourselves to be found in that category. But that's not always true of the world, is it? I mean, look, I am not not Saddam Hussein or Pol Pot, right? That That is true. But I have done some pretty cruel and selfish things in my life. I have said thoughtless things that broke people's hearts. 
I've used people to serve what I wanted, even if it left them wounded. I participate in systems that grind people under their wheels. I've done a lot of good things, yes, sure. But you know what? I know, I can, I can picture the faces of at least a few people who in a few points in their lives were praying that God's justice would come against those who hurt them, and my face would be one of the ones that they're thinking of when they pray that, right? So I want God to judge evil and do away with those who damage the good of the world, but I do so with this kind of tension in my gut because I also know that my hands aren't completely clean of blood. And that tension actually shows up in the Bible too, in this Old Testament background for Paul. So for instance, in Psalm 143, David first prays, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. So he's praying for salvation, right? He's praying that God would come and answer his prayer and deliver him. And then he immediately says right after that, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Answer me in your righteousness, but please also spare me from it. God's righteousness is both David's hope for salvation and his fear for condemnation. And so when Paul declares the righteousness of God being revealed, he has that exact tension in mind. He's thinking both that he wants God to come in salvation and vindicate us as his people, but also that we are still sinful, that no one living is righteous before God. So what do we do? What do we do with that tension? Paul's answer is faith. Faith. You see it here. The righteousness we are looking for is by faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We're going to talk quite a bit about faith in a few months. Justification by faith will be one of Paul's major themes in this book. But here's what Paul means, all right? How do we find God's righteousness revealed in our salvation without also seeing it revealed in our condemnation? The answer is that, um, is that if we expect, it's by faith, all right? If we expect God's righteousness to spare us rather than consume us, we need to be righteous. But we aren't righteous, not truly, fully, ultimately. We're still a part of breaking the world. So where do we get that kind of righteousness? The answer is by trusting in what God has done in Jesus, by having faith in him. That faith in what God has done in Jesus actually gives us righteous standing before God even though we don't deserve it. Even though we aren't, in the biblical sense, righteous, by trusting in what Jesus has done, we are declared righteous by God and free from his judgment just because of that. Another way to put that is that the gospel is the final word on who we are. The final word on who we are. The final word on how God views us the final word on whether or not God loves us. That there's no but what about that brings in my work or my obedience or my performance or my sin. I am saved by faith in Christ's work alone yesterday and today and forever. That the final word has been spoken in Jesus and that it is that I am perfect and welcomed and righteous and loved. And let me try to put it this way, all right? Here's something that I've noticed um, I do this with lots of people, but I probably notice it most with Elizabeth. I do something stupid, right? And Elizabeth says, I tell her that I'm sorry, and she says, it's fine, you're forgiven. And that's not what's interesting, right? That's just Tuesday. But what's interesting is what happens next. (laughs) What happens next is that I don't leave it there. 
right? She, she says I'm forgiven, but I keep talking. <laughs> I start trying to justify what I've done and explain why I did it, start explaining my motives or the background or say why I did this stupid thing or I start offering, well, let me make it up by doing these other things, you know, trying to help out with this other stuff. And the thing is, Elizabeth wasn't lying, right? <laughs> she had forgiven me in that moment. She wasn't angry at me. And usually she gets frustrated when I start doing that because I've already got the forgiveness The final word has been spoken. So what am I doing? The answer is that I'm trying to do exactly what I think we also do as Christians. That I'm not content with forgiveness. I'm trying to justify myself. To somehow bring in my own righteousness and performance. Which is silly, really, because it was my own stupidity that got me in that situation in the first place, right? But I'm suddenly trying now to earn it. And we do that with God The idea that we are justified by faith alone, not by our performance. That is an idea that we all love and hate, right? We love it because we need it, but we also hate it because we want to be the kinds of person, people who do this for ourselves, who earn it for ourselves, and who deserve it. And now look, we as Christians are supposed to seek to obey and serve God, all right? We're supposed to grow in our own lived righteousness and sanctification. Some people get uncomfortable when they hear that kind of proclamation that it's just faith, you know, from first to last that saves us because they feel like it undercuts the call to obedience. And it doesn't, and we're going to get to talking about obedience as we work through Romans. But here's the thing. Um, We're going to get to the answer to that question of why would we obey if God regards us as righteous just by faith. But I don't actually want to answer it today because our hearts, my heart, is so proud and it so longs to figure out a way to make Christianity feed that pride. We desperately want to tell ourselves that we earned it and that we deserved it and that we are in the right. But we can't and we don't. Not according to scripture. God's judgment of us, none of it depends on our performance. Not one little bit. You can't make him any happier with you by what you've done than he is right now. You cannot make him any less delighted in you than he is in Jesus Christ. Your obedience can't earn you any more love. Your disobedience can't earn you any less love. That's something that scripture insists on over and over. That in the gospel, as we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have God's welcome and love and delight. And so yeah, we're called to obey, and we'll talk about that some in the coming weeks of Romans. And it is important. But we cannot understand the Bible's call to obedience until we first understand what it is not. It is not a way that we earn things from God. It is not a way to make ourselves righteous. It is not a way to maintain God's love. The final word has been spoken by God in Jesus, and that final word for every one of us is that we are in Jesus' perfect and welcomed, and righteous, and loved. That's what it's all about, friends. That's where we need to return again and again. The gospel. That in Jesus Christ, every boundary in this world has been crossed. Race, and culture, and education, and nationality. Those are real things. They all create challenges and struggles, but that Jesus is not a respecter of any of them. That he has bled and died to cross them. And so our call is to bleed and to live in a way that tries to seek unity.
And in Jesus Christ, the power of God is at work in the world. That his death and resurrection is the power that turns sinners from their sin and toward the Father. And it is the power that continues to turn sinners from their sin and towards the Father. Sinners like you and me. And ultimately, in Jesus Christ, the final word has been spoken for all of us. That if we are in him, we are righteous and spotless and loved. We are holy and pure. We are God's sons and daughters and fellow heirs with Christ. That nothing we can do and nothing we can fail to do can change that fact. That God spoke and the world was and God speaks and that is what we are. So return to that gospel again this morning and every morning. Return to that truth. Because as we do, as we hear the good news of Jesus Christ again and again, as we let it sink down into our hearts and kind of permeate us more and more, we will begin to resemble the one who the good news proclaims, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I so want to be deserving of this proclamation. And that in many ways is a reminder of why I need it. Because I'm not. I know, Lord, that I'm a sinner. In so many ways that I fail to to be the creature that you created and called me to be. But you, Lord, have chosen, despite all of that, in Jesus Christ, to work my righteousness, to cover my guilt, to give me new life and the hope of eternity. I pray that you might speak to me and to all of us of that hope and the beauty of what you've done in him. And that we might, as we do that, more and more learn to trust in you and follow after you and hope in your great work of salvation. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with me and sing.
Amen. God looks on you. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and welcomes you just as he welcomes his son. This week, just preach that to yourself and live in the hope that that provides. There's a time of fellowship after this. If you'd like to join us, it's good to gather with brothers and sisters. And um, so there's treats and stuff in the fellowship hall if you'd like to join us. Look in the bulletin if you have any questions about announcements. And go with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace this day and evermore. Amen.